Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context, and this is going to be an interesting interview, but also a fun interview because we're talking to Dr. Samuel Ferguson, and I did not know Dr. Ferguson, and we're talking before we record and find out he's in Northern Virginia. So it's like old home week. So Samuel actually followed Dr. John Yates, Reverend John Yates, who's a dear and precious friend for many, many years. When Cindy and I lived in Northern Virginia, we were neighbors and brothers in arms. And so, Sam, it's a delight to have a a Northern Virginian, just a great friend to give you such a great endorsement to say, here's the Falls Church, take it over. So, wow, congratulations and thanks for jumping on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Michael. It's a joy to talk with you and also to know that you spent time here in Northern Virginia as well. So it's, it's an honor to be here. We love Nova. We were there almost 12 years. My wife would go back probably if our grandchildren weren't here. So <laughs> that tells you a little bit about our love with the people up there. It's an extraordinary place to live. It's complicated, yeah, but it's an extraordinary place to live. Well, anyway, you have contributed to a series of books that Crossway is doing called Hard Questions. They're booklets, which is, I think, a good choice today because people buy books but may not read them. Or if you're like me, you've got innumerable ones that are open to chapter two, three, or four, and they will forever stay there. This is a series called Hard Questions Facing the Modern Church. Can you give me a thumbnail about what they're doing with these books, Samuel? Yeah, I mean, they have in mind 10 or 12 titles. They've released three at this point. They're taking what seem to be very relevant questions. Is Christianity good for the world? Why do I feel so lonely at church? Does God care about my gender identity? One of the forthcoming titles is something like, if I'm a Christian, why am I depressed? And they're trying to get people who have some level of knowledge or expertise about the topic to write basically a long essay. So I think 7,500 to 9,000 words on the topic that's tight, clear, and not only answers the question theologically, but provides some pastoral help. And it's the kind of thing, ideally, you'd picture a church lobby having a stand with a lot of these, and people could grab them, buy them for you know five or seven dollars, and it helps people address really hard questions. I think not everybody can read a two hundred fifty page book, and so Crossway, along with the Gospel Coalition, is asking, what can we put in a busy parishioner's hand? that they could read on a Saturday morning with a couple friends. I give a lot of shout outs to Crossway. They're generous with their authors, but also I think there are five things they do in the email. They've done a good job of synthesizing yeah. stuff. Dr. Ferguson did his PhD work at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is a story for another time, how he ended up Anglican, but we'll leave that there. Now, just recently, I did an interview with three friends, two very close friends and one newer acquaintance on Andy Stanley's Unconditional. Unsurprisingly, that's been a a very viewed podcast as well as a lot of interesting comments. So when this came across, we were very excited to kind of follow this conversation because not to go too far into that conference, but it was basically an affirming conference. This is where you are and how do we affirm you and love you. You've taken quite a different tact. You tell a story, and again, a very easy read. You tell a story, and it is tight, about a person that you uh, spend a lot of time with who is transitioning. For folks my age, that's kind of a bridge Not too far, but it's a hard bridge, Samuel. And so I do applaud uh, younger men and women who are, are, you know, jumping into this topic. But did you ever envision when you started a ministry, this was the kind of thing you were going to be doing, talking to a young person who's transitioning? 
Yes and no. I think when I first felt called to ministry, my first entry in ministry was with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and I was a high school basketball coach, and this was 2007, 2008. But by the time I got into graduate school to do some theological work, I spent some time in England at a secular university. And while I was a student there is when I met, became friends with the first person I'd ever known who was transitioning genders. And that really put on my horizon that this is going to be a question. You could just start to see, this was 2011. You could start to see the way culture is moving. If you're a pastor, you're going to have to be able to address this in a biblical way and a pastoral way. I began to realize at that point, I should probably start to think about what are the big theological ideas underneath these conversations. In this case, it's biblical anthropology on the one hand. And probably what we do with hope, how do we find change when we're in pain on the other? But certainly it caught me off guard when I first encountered it, and I felt completely inadequate Mm -hmm. to know how to engage with it. Walk us through, again, the book's very easy to read. You can read it in, you know, 30 to 45 minutes, depending on your interest level and how long you're going to stop and underline like I do. You start talking with this person, and there's got to be a bit of a mind-blowing. You talk about being gentle and compassionate, but also truthful. My good friend Christopher Yuan and I talk a lot about truth is the issue, or Carl Truman as well. Truth mm-hmm. and redefinition of truth is sort of, to use your term, anthropological, what's true? Yeah. And if I look at biology, as you point out, versus my experience and my feeling, those are two universes. How do we get to, let's say, moving from fact to feeling? There's a lot undergirding the moment we're in. So, just anecdotally, the first time I was walking with a person going through what they described as gender confusion in a transition, they were biologically male and they were starting to cross-dress and move towards presenting as a woman. This person, and we, we were friends, this person asked me if I felt like a man. And I said, yeah, I, I do. And then they shot back very quickly, what does that mean? And don't tell me it means that you like girls in sports. What does it mean to feel like a man? And for years, I found myself thinking, man, that's a harder question to answer than I realized without reaching for cultural stereotypes. What does it mean to feel like a man? Well, I like to hunt and I like the color blue. Those things are just arbitrary. And then I finally realized that his question contained a hidden premise. And the premise was this, your identity is rooted in your feelings. And so he didn't ask me, are you a man? He said, do you feel like a man? And so once you see that, it would be like saying, do you feel like you're 21 years old? And it's like, well, my feelings, I may not feel my age, but my age is grounded in something other than my feelings. Or do you feel Caucasian? It's like, well, I am Caucasian. If I told you I felt Asian, it wouldn't make me Asian. So when you come to gender, however, If someone says, I feel a certain thing, that all of a sudden defines who they are rather than the facts of their embodiment or their biology. Once I saw that, I thought, okay, there's something that's happened where it's kind of a mind over matter view of a person. So we've relocated identity into the space of psychology. And this goes back to Descartes, you know, his famous dictum, I think, therefore I am. You could just apply it to gender and feelings and say, I feel, therefore I am. So that move inward 
has massive implications, and we're just seeing one of them. They played out in many different ways. I read that in your book about the Descartes reference because truth, if we go back to truth for a moment, truth is it's hot, it's cold, it's black, it's white, yeah. it's a void, it's a vacuum, it's got substance and material. And somewhere along the line, how I feel about things transcended this. And what's interesting to me is in this area, and you even you make a almost a prophetic illusion, our society agrees, at least for now, that age and ethnic identity are determined by cold, hard facts, not feelings. So you've seen these pejorative guys like Pierce talk about, you know, well, I, I feel like a lesbian African-American woman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whatever. Some guy walks into a place and he, I'm 16. And that's ludicrous. Yeah, for now. Mm-hmm. And that's where it's going to be interesting because these things don't stop illustrating LGBTQAI+. Mm-hmm. And we talk about the alphabet, what comes next. I have friends from the lesbian and gay era, and they're not happy with the rest of that alphabet. Yeah. They didn't change their identity. They chose their sexual affirmation. They said, I'm a lesbian. I'm a gay man. And they didn't say we're going to, you know, get into biology and hormonal treatments and so forth and so on. So that's an interesting leap. And you don't really address that in your book, but I'm sure you read about it and studied it. Yeah, I mean, there's an inherent contradiction within the LGBTQ movement where to be lesbian and gay assumes the reality of men and women, right? If you're a lesbian, you're a woman attracted to women. Or if you're bisexual, it assumes a binary world of men and women. But then if you move into the transgender conversation, you realize people can't really define what a woman is increasingly, because if it's not biology, if it's just a feeling, it's as fluid and expansive as your emotions. But if you feel that you're a woman, but at the same time, you can't define what a woman is, you run into all types of contradictions. Because the movement doesn't have an agreed upon truth or what you know the ancients would Nomenclature, say, an agreed, yeah. an agreed upon metaphysic, that there's a reality yeah. outside my feelings that grounds who I am. There's a lot of contradictions in it. And I think you also see how this plays out in other areas, like with women's rights or in women's sports. There's a lot of controversy about a man, a biological male identifying as a woman and then wanting to compete in the arena of female sports. And there's people in the LGBTQ movement who aren't happy about that either. So yeah, there's a lot of contradictions. And I don't think it's going to become any easier. One of the things you talk about is that we find wholeness through external, not internal change. And that's back to your, you know, I feel like a woman, therefore I am. How did this happen from a cultural standpoint? I mean, social media, without question the paparazzi and the obsession with hollywood the obsession with high profile people stars successful people that has to be a big part of the tipping or am i just disconnected from culture no i think there's probably a lot going on it's a soup with a lot of ingredients and we all swim in it so certainly the phenomenon of social media exacerbates a young person's need to think about how they appear outwardly all the time It's like you live in a hallway of mirrors all the time and you're evaluated on your appearance. So that's going to heighten people's sense of how they look. I think underneath this, there's more going on. And I think another thing going on is simply, I think as the Western world made life more and more comfortable for people, longer life spans, I think the Christian church diminished its view of heaven and hell 
And I think we really do live as though we have to have our best life now. And what that means is if you have disquiet and pain about your present earthly life, your only shot at hope is fixing it now. So people can't really bear up with pain. Like Paul says in Romans 8, he says, these momentary afflictions are not worth comparing with the weight of glory that is being momentary prepared for light, us. Momentary light, momentary exactly. light affliction. Yeah. So, so Paul's going <laughs> to, yeah, Paul's going to handle present discomfort by putting it in the balances with eternal joy. We don't really do that anymore. I think even the Christian community doesn't do a good job of that. That's one reason why people need to find a way to mitigate their discomfort with their body as fast as they can. Whereas I think a former generation would have said, well, read Paul, your outer self is wasting away. You are waiting for the redemption of your body. When Jesus appears, he will transform your body to be a glorious body like his own. So you really are dying right now. Like even when you're a Christian and your mortality hangs on you like a wet blanket and people feel that as they age. But we're trying to, in some ways, escape that. And it doesn't mean you don't care for yourself or your appearance or take care of yourself, but we put too much weight on this momentary's life ability to, I think, meet all our needs for happiness. There's a lot going on underneath this, but I definitely sense that, that we don't handle pain very well. Agreed. Yeah, those that know my story know I deal with chronic pain. Hmm. The outer man is decaying, but the inner man, hopefully... Yeah. being renewed day by day, that that yeah. my wife would probably differ with that. In your booklet, you also have a great quote from N.T. Wright. Gender transitioning involves denying the goodness yeah. or even the ultimate reality of the natural world. Nature, however, tends to strike back with the likely victims in this case being vulnerable and impressionable youngsters who, as confused adults, will pay the price for their elders' fashionable fantasies. Boom. Mic drop. Who was the first man that transitioned at Johns Hopkins? And then he and the surgeon went around the country speaking, saying, don't ever do this. John Money was one of the early doctors at Hopkins. And then you have more recently, Paul McHugh. But there's been several stories. There's a famous case with twins, but there's been several stories about people who have transitioned and now are saying, this isn't real. And I think we're going to see a lot of those, especially when we're encouraging young people to transition who are just young. You know, who knows what they're going to feel when they're 30 or 35. You talk about those older. I are one of those. Cindy and I have a famous story. We tell one of our daughters had uh, very close friends that were twins. And when they were together, people thought they were triplets. They were thick as thieves. They played together. They roughhoused together. One of the twins was makeup, hair clothes, the whole nine yards. The other twin was a tomboy, hat on backwards, climbing trees, athletic. We didn't think anything of that. We thought one of the twins was this girl that was you know, interested in clothing and hair and dressing up. And the other one was like, hey, I want to have a good time. Today, those two young adults are married. They both have children. The tomboy actually is a phenomenal horse trainer. So she's in her element but she's a woman. She still looks like a tomboy, but there was never any differentiation that maybe I'm a boy. Even if as a parent, when you have kids in sports or not in sports, musical theater, there's this tension of, you know, how do I 
we used to say, fan the spark that God designed in them. Are they interested in studies or athletics or the analytical, the compassionate, what's their character like? This is all jettisoned today. That's why the old guys like me are throwing our hands up going, how do you minister to a culture? We were trying to share the gospel, make disciples, do missions efforts, give money away to those in need, build buildings and pay off buildings and all that, you know, materialistic stuff. And now, boy, the tables have changed, Samuel. So that's more of a vent and help out an old guy. (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting, this story about the twins you knew and still know. You know, as I was researching for this booklet, I came across, you know, different thoughts about cultural stereotypes with gender. And one of the things I kept coming across was just the notion that parents should not overreact if their kids yeah. don't map neatly onto, you know, gender stereotypes, that's not uncommon at all. And I think we right. do have to expand our understanding. I mean, it's perfectly fine for a young woman to like rough and tumble play. It's perfectly fine for a young boy to be interested in music instead of sports. And if you go back to the Bible, the Bible doesn't give you a ton of specifics about gender expression outside of a few roles within the church. And then marriage, right? Like man and a woman, here's what happens, how babies are made. But David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, you know, he's a musician. He's filled with emotion when you read the Psalms. And then he's also a warrior king in different regards. I think we need to be careful with not overreacting when kids don't meet stereotypes. Yeah. Good friend of mine, Dr. Meg Meeker has said this for decades. She said, when your son or daughter comes in with something outlandish, the most important thing you do is not react. (laughs) You should just go, oh, you know, oh, that's interesting. Because your reaction amplifies. And what we know now with neuroscience is it it can leave an imprint. It can leave a mark the way a parent responds to a child that it's done something very different or wrong or whatever that you have to In the throes of parenting, it's tough to manage all that. Talk a little bit about, I love the way you differentiated or contrasted transitioning and transformation. I thought that was brilliant. I would say that's probably one of the core ideas in the booklet. And this is where I think Christians have a lot in common with people in the transgender community in this sense. Both Mm. Christians and people with gender confusion think a lot about pain and what human beings who are in pain can do to find hope and to find change. One of the key terms in the gender revolution is gender dysphoria. And that's the clinical definition for someone who experiences dissonance between their biological sex and their psychological sense of gender. Gender dysphoria. Dysphoria is just a word that literally means unease. It's the opposite of euphoria. And so The Bible actually has a lot to say about dysphoria, the notion that human beings are fallen, that our hearts are darkened, that our desires on the inside often don't map up with life on the outside. And so the transgender movement says that the key to move from dysphoria towards healing is a pathway called transitioning. And as I point out in the booklet, that word transitioning has this preposition trans, or a prefix trans, which comes from a Latin preposition, trans, which just means to move from one state to another, to move across, to move beyond. So they're going to say to a person in pain, here's your pathway to healing, and here's your pathway towards happiness. You have to transition. You have to change the outside of your body. It's a cosmetic change. Maybe there's surgery involved. The Christian comes in and says, you know, 
we actually have the word trans too. In our English versions of the Bible, it's with the word transformation. And Paul uses it several times. We are being transformed, he says in 2 Corinthians. As we behold the Lord, we're being transformed from one state of glory to the next. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, he talks about the need to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. So here's the key difference. The Christian idea of being trans, meaning wanting to go from a state of sinfulness and pain to a state of Christ-likeness and happiness, involves a transformation that works from the inside out. We believe in the new birth, right? Where does the new birth begin with? Not a new body. It begins with a new heart, right? Ezekiel 36, John 3. We're given a new spiritual constitution. And our change then happens from the inside out. It's a changing of how we think. It's the slow sanctifying work of the spirit. And our outer bodies, the change in our outer bodies awaits the resurrection when our bodies are made like Jesus's body, right? The gender movement works the total opposite. It says if you change the outside cosmetically, it will then lead to changing the inside. We just have to recognize that's a completely different pathway towards wholeness. And it's just cosmetic. It doesn't get to the inner person. And it happens by a scalpel. And we believe change happens by the Holy Spirit within the Christian community. And I think we need to help people to think more about the idea of transformation in a Christian context, that it's slow. There's a lot of pain involved as we're being changed. It requires walking alongside other Christians, but it's the path the Bible holds out to us that goes along the arc of redemption. One of the other ideas I like to share with people when I'm talking to them about this is Christians always have to work within the bookends of creation and redemption. And creation means you have to pastor your kids along the grain of creation. You can't cut against the grain because we believe in a creator. And redemption means that we're aiming people at the resurrection, which means you have to care for someone's body or gender identity in light of the fact that God will raise them from the dead with a body that coheres with their created wow. body. Jesus comes out of Mary as a man. He's resurrected from the dead as a man. And in Luke 24, he's like, touch my body. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. And so every human being we meet, whose gender is written in their very chromosomes, they're going to be raised from the dead the way God made them. And so if our work as a church moves them away from the arc of redemption, we're really not aligning with the work of our creator. What role, and it's maybe an obtuse question, but you know, Again, in my era, we called sin, sin, and I acknowledged my own sinfulness. I got more than one parishioner upset with me over the years when I said, you know, I sin every day. I sin all the time. I sin in my thought life. I sin under the cavity of my chest. I don't act out on sin, perhaps the way I did before I knew Christ. Well, that gets people really upset. But in this, it almost feels at some level, we want to be compassionate. We want to be loving. But you know, sometimes this is wrong. This is sin. Not only in a person who struggles with their gender dysphoria or identity, but in any Christian's life, a person in an affair, a person whose avarice and greed is over the top, an angry man. I probably like you have dealt with a lot of angry men in ministry over the years because they're hurt. Back to your earlier point, there's some dissonance and anger is a great way to put it at bay. But point being, do we ever say, guys, this is sinful? 
Absolutely. I think a lot of the church is too needy for the culture to like us. And at the end of the day, it doesn't do anyone any good if we downplay what sin is. I think the compassionate angle is the angle where you, we never operate from the moral high ground if we're Christians. Like we're sinners, right? We needed grace. So we're not standing over you, but we're speaking as representatives of Christ. And to alter your gender is a sin in the category of sexuality for members of the same sex to have sex is a sin. And these aren't hard ideas to see in the Bible. (laughs) They really aren't, but they're hard truths to teach in the culture. And so I think particularly when I talk with parents, because one of the ways the issue of transgenderism comes up for me now is with parents in my church whose teens or college students are transitioning. And it's hard because a lot of times young people, and I worked with a family where the daughter, junior in high school, was wanting to transition. And the language is, I'm suicidal. You have to let me do this. So it's really hard for parents. And I think, you know, every situation is unique, but at the end of the day, we owe it to people to give them clear contours about what's true. And I think to deny your maker by carving up your body is a sin. And this goes back to N.T. Wright's quote that you read, which was in the London Times back in, I think, 2017. Another incredible incoherence is in our culture is we have this rising environmentalism where people are obsessed with organic food. And what they mean is I don't want my chicken to have hormones in it, or I think the natural world should be treated in a natural way. And these same people are then willing to pump their bodies full of hormones and cut off organs that are perfectly healthy and at the same time be furious if someone cuts down a tree in the rainforest or pollutes a stream or uses hormones in chicken. And I want to step back and say there's an idea here that nature ought to be treated in a natural way. And that's actually a Christian idea. It's idea rooted in natural law. And Christians are just applying this to the human body. I say to people sometimes, the human body is the voiceless victim of the gender revolution. It has no voice, but it gets thrown on tables and carved up and mutilated. That's a fact. Yeah. So I think we have to be willing to call it a sin in a humble way. Sure, sure. I mean, fire and brimstone went out, you know, a long time ago. But again, I just think pastors are hit with so many voices and what their role is, what their job is, how you affect change, lead a church, deal with sessions or elders or a presbyter or a board or whatever God gave you. You know, there's so many voices. It's a unique job ministry in that regard. Unlike early on when I was a solo pastor, I did a little bit of counseling about, you know, eight folks a week. And then I said, nope, I got to find somebody outside this because I can't go from a heavy session to studying Luke again. You know, we're not all wired the same way, but point being, it just seems like we're always laying everything back on the church, Samuel. It's the church has got to do this. The parents have to do that. And we're all swimming. We're swimming under an economy upside down under a, another God knows we're going to pandemic around the corner. I mean, what in the world is happening globally? And so people are just they're afraid and their son or daughter comes and says, 
uh, want to change. Um, you know, the lesbian and gay thing almost seems like, oh, okay. But the transition stuff and the affirming is really interesting to me. The subtlety of it is louder, it seems like, than when we were dealing with gays and lesbians and Obergefell. I think with families, one of the things I, I hear a lot in the church is that through the public school system, children are introduced to these ideas very early and often before their parents are aware and way before their parents would like to have a conversation with them about sexuality or lesbianism or transgenderism. And there's a subtlety to that where it's like years ago, we realized how bad smoking was for you. And it didn't just affect smokers, there was a phenomenon called secondhand smoke, right? So we finally said, you can't smoke in restaurants. Why? Because even if you're not smoking, you're getting secondhand smoke. Well, there's an element where there's secondhand smoke all around us in terms Mm -hmm. of these ideas. And so even if you as a parent or in your church, you're not teaching these things, your people are breathing in this smoke every time they're on YouTube, every time they're watching a sitcom. Every time your kids are in a public school and they're around friends talking about it. And I think families are are really, they just feel discouraged and they're not sure what to do. And as a pastor, it, it is perplexing. We have a lot more people wanting to do homeschool or go to private schools. Not everybody can do that. And I don't say that everybody has to do that, but I do think the church's ministry of the old word would be catechesis of teaching the basic truths, we're going to have to redouble our efforts and we're also going to have to re-articulate doctrines in light of modern questions. It's kind of like during the Reformation, one of the things that people had to grapple with was the doctrine of soteriology of salvation in light of whether or not you're saved by faith or saved by works. Right. And that's because it was a live question. Well, now we're going to have to just see what are the big questions about embodiment, about anthropology, about how we deal with collective guilt, and how do we help people think these things through in a very helpful, simple way. I just think the church, it's going to require more than just Sunday morning and then maybe one youth group meeting a week. I think the conversations I'm having with my peers is how do we resource people with Mm -hmm. things like this, this little booklet, but a lot of more things like this and help them teach their kids. But yeah, it's subtly coming in through so many different nooks and crannies. Oh, I don't think it's that subtle. Yeah. <laughs> We're in Williamson County, Tennessee, which is a very conservative area. The creep is fascinating. I've yeah. gone so far as to say in the last couple of years, you need to get your kids out of public school. Yes, there are some that there are a lot of fine men and women who are teaching, and in many cases, a lot of believers who are teaching, mm-hmm. what comes down from curriculum is pretty hard to combat. And yeah. so we have a thing called tutorials here, and you probably do in Nova as well, that's a hybrid for people that can't do homeschooling or don't feel equipped to. The tutorials are brilliant, mm-hmm. and they're very, very affordable, unlike a private school that can be mm-hmm. 40, 50 grand a year per kid. That's pretty hard for a lot of Americans. But you mentioned embodiment, and that was the one part of your book. I kind of scratched my head at a couple of times. I'm a slow learner, Samuel. Explain a little bit about what you mean about embodiment. This is one of the more complicated areas, admittedly, that I've Makes me feel better. Yeah. (laughs) That makes me feel better. (laughs) The idea that your gender can be your feelings raises the question, if that's not true, 
then where is your gender located? So if I were to say to my friend when I was in England, I don't think your gender is rooted in your feelings. He would say to me, then where is my gender rooted? And I would say it's rooted in your body, your biology. You can see that in your chromosomes, in your reproductive organs, in your anatomical features, that it's clear humans come in two sexes or two genders, male and female. So when we talk about embodiment, what we mean is that gendered is an embodied reality. It's something written into our tangible, tactile body. The same way we might speak about ethnicity. It's something that shows up in the markings and the style of our body. And so that's what we mean by embodiment. And interestingly, you know, decades ago, Pope John Paul II really was one of the forerunners in terms of Christian thinking about this with his magnum opus, Theology of the Body. And that's a very philosophical work. But what John Paul tried to do was say this notion of humanness rooted in Descartes' feelings is problematic. And I think he was prophetic. And I think our views of gay marriage are rooted in a disembodied view of being human. Like I think that in Genesis 2, which is a zoom lens on the creation of the first man and woman, God is making a male and a female. And the emphasis is on tactile things, right? He's working with dirt. He's working with ribs. He's shaping it. And then at the end of that chapter, the one flesh union, right? It culminates in the marriage, the one flesh union, this notion of oneness in the Hebrew, it's only intelligible because of the complementarity of the male and female body. They're two puzzle pieces that fit together. So the sex act biblically, is an embodied reality. It matters that the male and female anatomically fit one another. Forgive me for having to be this graphic, but you kind of have to to speak this way now. And so I think Christians need to think more about the meaning of our bodies. They do speak of who we are. That's that area of embodiment that is kind of understudied in Protestant theology. And there's books coming out. Sam Aubrey has a book out on it. Greg Allison has a book out just titled Embodiment. So there's more people writing on it now. You know, it's interesting because, you know, I've taught Genesis a number of times, made a big, big effort to explain male and female. He created them in his image. He created them. And even I appreciated what you did in your book where you talk about the ground and the word in Hebrew is Adam. And I often make a joke about that. He makes Adam into Adam. It's a wordplay. You're a dirt man. And apart from the breath of life that I breathe into you, you're just like the animals. But because I made you in my image, and then the woman to me is the coup de grace because she's fashioned, not formed. And you point that out. I use the hand and glove that she was precisely made for Adam and Adam for her. And the fact that he didn't make her out of Adam directly, to me, is the crowning creation, right? We look at this union that he gave them, naked and not ashamed. I stumbled across an AKC book years ago on dogs, why I was reading it, I have no idea. But you know, in the AKC world, they all believe that all dogs came from an original pair of dogs. (laughs) It's right there in the first chapter. Mm-hmm. it's proven if you let dogs go back, there are no more dachshunds or poodles or wine marauders. Mm-hmm. They become basically a wolf German shepherd looking animal because they go back to mama, so to speak. 
And I often wonder about how this, back to your point about no hormones and love the earth and so forth and so on, which leads me to biochemistry, which I won't go down to, because I, I always <laughs> laugh at, I always laugh at hormone and NGO because I'm, it's just a different chem set. It's just a different chem set. You're living an illusion, but be that as it may. Okay, let's wind this up with something practical rather than my rants. A couple comes to you, a married couple comes to you. You've already said don't overreact, but they're heartbroken. They've done things wrong, shamed, anger, whatever, and now they're watching their young son or daughter want to change steps. Yeah, I think they're going to be a little different based on the age. So let me just first say, if you're dealing with an adolescent that's, let's say, 11 or 12, I would say you need to really consider significant intervention, which would look like pulling him or her out of their school. What we're seeing is in a lot of these cases, what's going on is social contagion. That's Mm. kind of a term people use that they're around friends at school, they're on social media. And so one of the families at our church that brought their daughter out of this literally studied how people were removed from cults and just applied it. And it was fascinating. So you've got to make a big intervention. Maybe move away for a year as a family. Take them out of school for a year. Have them work on a horse farm. If they're young, make a radical intervention. Is not too much to do because they're in a web of lies and they're young. I think inside the home, I do not advocate using pronouns. And one of the reasons is I don't think you can abdicate your authority as a parent. And studies show that soft transitioning, so soft transitioning is pronoun change and cross-dressing. It's soft versus like permanent, like surgeries. Soft transitioning makes it more likely that that child will It's like a gateway. It's like a gateway drug. Yeah. It doesn't lessen the chance. It makes it more likely that they'll persist. So soft transitioning is not actually helpful, even though it feels helpful in the short run. So I would guard against that. I would try to keep lines of communication open. I talk a lot about it. I would obviously try to get a prayer group confidentially praying for you at your church, but I'd make a big intervention. I wouldn't shame them. And I would try to explain to them. I'd try to broaden their understanding of gender. Like maybe it's a daughter and she says, I want to cut my hair short. Fine. Cut your hair short. You know, doesn't make you a boy, you know, or you want to play different games. Fine. You know, but you can't become a boy if you're a woman and you just need to make sure they understand that if it's let's say late high school or into college so when you hit that 18 years old mark i walked with a family very closely for a year while their high school daughter was wanting to transition four kids she was the oldest and what i did is i met with her monthly to do a bible study and They didn't allow her to change pronouns in the house. And she kind of found a name. She could go by a nickname that felt a little more gender neutral. And they did everything they could. She went off to college and then she started a hormone treatment through her college. And then by the time she was 20, she got a double mastectomy. And now Mm -hmm. she is 23. She presents publicly as a man. She hasn't got what's called a bottom surgery. So she literally is walking around as a woman presenting as a man. And I look at that situation and I just want to say to parents, like, there is no silver bullet and it is so hard. I mean, I have a case going on at my church right now, just like this. And so you want to keep lines of communication open, but once your child's over 18, 
there is only so much you can do. This may be helpful if a parent's listening to keep conversation going. One of the things young people say when they're talking with parents is they talk about, this is my identity, this is my gender identity, and you're denying my identity. And identity in our culture right now, it functions like the sacred cow. You can't violate someone's identity. I think it's important for parents to say back to their kids, that's your gender identity, but this is our faith identity. And our faith identity mm. has certain implications for how we view embodiment. We believe God made your body just like we believe he made the natural world. And we don't feel like your body can be violated this way. We believe God made you based on your chromosomes and anatomical features, reproductive organs. And the parents need to say, so you're asking us to deny our core identity, our faith identity, in order to accept your gender identity. And you need to just point out to the child, if you're going to use identity as a get out of jail free card, you need to be honest and let our identity have a space in the conversation too. And that can be a way to at least say, for the sake of inclusivity, (laughs) you need to be inclusive of our faith identity. And that can help create a conversation space. In the booklet, I have eight things I suggest for parents, but I, let me just say, I'm not, I'm not batting a thousand with working with families. I mean, well, it's really but hard. No, you're you're batting a hundred if you're mm-hmm. being clear and loving and mm-hmm. kind and truthful. I tell parents all the time, your kids are free agents. You just don't know it. The moment you give them the car keys, they are 100% free agents, literally and metaphorically. But the booklet is, Does God Care About Gender Identity? Dr. Samuel Ferguson's contribution to a Crossway series I'm anxious to see. Do you remember the Critical Concern series that may predate you? Loma did a 10-volume set. It was remarkable. This may be the new version of that that's more accessible because those tended to be a little bit more you referred to 300-page books that harder to get people to read. Anyway, God bless you in your ministry. Thanks for coming on In Context. We're going to have information, as always, in the show notes where you can find the resource. I would also encourage you to check out the Falls Church Anglican Assembly in the Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C. area. It's a beautiful church, beautiful people that love the Lord. It's a great place to live if you're assigned there or you got the short straw and you had to go there. <laughs> But thanks, brother. Appreciate you. Thank you, Michael. This has been a joy and a real honor. God bless you and your ministry. Likewise. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.